0: Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Joe Favorito along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Hi, Joe. What's happening? So we're going, we're making the rounds of the investment bank community in sports these days. That's
1: cool. It's great hanging out on Park yeah. Avenue. Yeah, right. Especially exactly. in the New York spring spring weather.
0: In the building, which is also, by the way, the headquarters of Major League Baseball for now anyway. That's right. We're um, but we're not going to, we'll talk, maybe we'll talk a little Should bit about re-
1: baseball. we reveal our location?
0: Uh, We're in the offices of Houlihan Loki, as a matter of fact. 245 Park Avenue. And our guest today uh, is someone who I've worked with, Tom has worked with in various places, uh, with businesses very big and small. Um, And the interesting thing is we're going to talk a little bit about career reinvention or where you can go. Uh, Someone who may, as we said before, is probably in the third act of his sports business career. A very illustrious career, (laughs) we might add. Our guest is Chris Russo. Chris, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. Great to be with you guys.
0: So let's talk a little bit. Um, we want to obviously hear a little bit about how you got here. NFL, where you worked with Tom, the big lead, where you worked with me. Um, some of the other stops in between uh, your, your your school background, your unique relationship to a former Knicks broadcaster, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll kind of get into what Houlihan Loki is and how the sports investment community is structured today.
2: So turn it over to you. Great. No, thank you guys. Again, appreciate the chance. I'll talk a little bit about my background and then would love to get into the issues around the sports business today. So I, after college, went to Northwestern, started my career, believe it or not, in investment banking in the 1980s. Went to, to Merrill Lynch for two years, said, I hate banking. I don't want to be a banker. Oops. <laughs> uh, went went back to business school and, and really recognized at that time that I kind of loved – the sports and media space. My uncle, as Joe referenced, uh, was the Knicks broadcaster Jim Carvella. So I'd grown up in and around sports. My dad actually worked for a local TV station in Chicago. So I'd, again, grown up going down to television stations. Mm-hmm. And so following business school, went to NBC and ultimately uh, got into the marketing department there, was ultimately VP of marketing and spent five years at NBC and television, then went to New Line Cinema, which was a Time Warner company, also involved in TV, but more on the production side. But throughout those stints, really always was itching to do something in sports. So out of the blue, I got a call from a recruiter in 1999 who said, we're looking for someone to run the NFL's new media division. We don't want a tech person. We want someone with programming experience and marketing experience. Would you be interested in interviewing? Went to a couple of interviews, ultimately met Commissioner Tagliabu, got hired to run at that time NFL.com. We then expanded it into a satellite radio deal with Sirius, a mobile deal with Sprint, uh, launched the first fantasy games there, and really had a great five- or six-year run at the league, focusing on digital media.
1: Big partnership with AOL, as a- I recall. A- AOL,
2: Tom was a partner <laughs> along the way, and, yeah. and uh, so it, it was great. We did we did work with eBay, we had worked with Yahoo, yeah, AOL. We did some
1: really great things at, the, at that time, and interestingly to, interesting to remember, that was pre-social media... Pre-mobile, it was a a different world of digital. So new media was like dial-up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was
2: new media. It was uh, you know the AOL uh, monthly subscription. But big thing was
1: broadband. What do you do with the fat pipes? And and
2: we actually, you know, to that point, we launched some of the first NFL films programming Mm -hmm. online, and that was compelling. But then toward the end of my stint at the NFL, we did do the first uh, serious deal, and then we launched NFL Mobile. Uh, So that was great. But interestingly, as I would go to owners' meetings. would look around the room and sort of say, "Hmm, look at these guys. These are all very successful folks. Most of them made it on their own. They were entrepreneurs. I ought to do that. And in 2005, 2006, the world was great. It was easy to raise money. Uh, Everything was kind of looking up. So I had a concept called Fantasy Sports Ventures, which was a Mm roll-up of initially fantasy websites, later was called Big Lead Sports as we broadened beyond fantasy and, and ultimately rounded up about 500 sites uh, what I didn't realize was going to happen is 2008, 2009, 2010. So we kind of hung in there, got to the other side, sold the business in 2012 to USA Today. And then since then I've been an advisor of sorts, uh, first with my own advisory firm, and then more recently with Houlihan Loki, where I do more banking but as as I like to say in Joe kind of reference, I've kind of had three acts in the sports business, first at the big league, then at the big lead, and now uh, as an advisor so, the really, big money. Uh, so I don't yeah, know about so, that, but yeah. still uh, again, really great to kind of see yeah. all perspectives. Of let me it. just
1: ask you go back to the the um, creation of fantasy sports ventures because remember when that happened that was we were all really impressed with with the, the fact that you were doing something uh, so ambitious but what what did you see in the changing media landscape that prompted you to to, to launch that company
2: well I th- you know what I saw was uh, a very fragmented group of small fantasy content sites that unto themselves were not necessarily big businesses but could be really rolled up in a way that would drive scale. What had happened over the time that I was at the NFL from 99 to 05 is fantasy really started to take off. It had gone from 2 or 3 million people playing to 25 or 30 million people playing. And there was this whole ecosystem of independent content sites that were supporting the big games at NFL.com and Yahoo. And I felt I could roll up a bunch of those properties and really create an asset of scale, sell ads, do subscription and, and, and it really, you know, worked out well. I mean, similarly, you know, 10 years later, you look at what other folks have done. In other sectors like the Blue Star sports folks have rolled up a whole lot of things in the, in, the, in the registration space. Other people are looking to do that in the data space. Every now and then within the sports industry, there's some roll-up opportunity that lends itself to kind of putting those pieces together.
1: seems like the roll-up concept gets reinvented. For each era of digital and and media uh, progression, it, it, it I think I
2: think it does, and I think you know people are looking at esports and saying you know there's Ooh, a lot of right. small players there. Players, right? are, are there are there opportunities if sports gambling becomes yeah. legal? There are probably interesting plays there. So yeah, I think that um, a lot of innovation happens in smaller places, and big media companies sometimes can't. Um, really create those kind of things on their own. So they're waiting for someone to bring all the pieces together. And that's that's an area for entrepreneurs to capitalize and, on.
0: And, and the big media companies have the other thing, which is capital, that can help because a lot of the smaller ones don't. And one of the great things about fantasy sports ventures and then the big lead, which, by the way, still exists mm-hmm. under Jason McIntyre yeah. at USA Today, um, is that there were all these great, real smart people who knew a lot about small things. And what you did was roll up all these small people and help them get some capital so that they could grow a little bit and grow their audience. Yeah, yeah.
2: well, look, I think that's, that's the case with a lot of small businesses and sports. It's very hard when you're small to raise money, uh, and it's hard to get attention, and it's hard to get advertiser dollars. But when you're part of something bigger, uh, you can sometimes capitalize on that. The problem becomes – You have to create an entrepreneurial enough environment so that all these folks who are used to running their own show feel good about being part of something bigger. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't.
1: Chris, one specific question related to fantasy and pro sports that uh, I, I think I know the answer, but you weren't at the NFL when they started
2: their proprietary fantasy business, were you? I was not there when they were looking at, uh, apparently, again, some proprietary software or right. pieces. When I got to the NFL in 99, there had been no fantasy games on NFL.com. And I that had, was all
1: through Sportsline, I think, yeah, well, it, I on mean, CBS. It,
2: yeah, so we, yeah. what we did in 99-2000 is we launched the first games – in, conu- in conjunction with CBS Sportsline. Right. And that was, you know, getting Commissioner Tagliabue comfortable with the concept right. and getting our head of communications, Joe Brown, comfortable with the concept. And really I'm the sure way... that was really easy to do. Yeah. It, was, it was very so, easy. So, so. But, well,
1: but, it used to be, like when I was at the NFL in the mid-90s, it was a dirty word. Yeah. We, we were not yeah, really yeah. allowed to talk about fantasy yeah. sports. Well,
2: I think what, again, one of the things when I got there was the broadcasters weren't really allowed to talk about it on the air right. either. So we got that prohibition removed, and we got players promoting fantasy. But I think the concept then was you can drive engagement, you can drive Mm -hmm. TV viewership. I think fast forward to today, there are some that make that argument about gambling, that if you can actually have in-game gambling, you're going to drive engagement. Now, not everybody agrees with that. There are pros and cons of sports gambling, but that's another argument for those kind of activities. But I thought
1: it was just interesting that the NFL was, to this day, is the the one and only league that actually invested in its own platform for fantasy sports. And at some point... Uh, the leadership of the league made a decision to do that and yeah. leagues are not known for their investments in in, in new uh, businesses yeah look i
2: think that i think that um, also times change you know back when i was running nfl.com Uh, we were able to leverage the investments that other people like AOL and CBS Sportsline were were making in terms of big infrastructure. Now today, some of those investments are easier to make. And so all the sports Mm -hmm. leagues have their own websites hosted or their own mobile apps, whereas back then there was a lot more leverage from third parties.
0: So let's go to today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think talking about what you do here is very relevant because, frankly, my my guess is that a lot of people hear, oh, sports investment, investment companies – people who have capital and they all look and smile and it's kind of like the emperor's new clothes because frankly a lot of people sit there and say oh that's interesting oh by the way I have no idea what the hell that means Mm -hmm. so can you walk us through what you do at Hoolahan Loki how it works and how the, the pipeline kind of goes along.
2: Sure So Houlihan-Loki is a global investment bank. Uh, We focus on four things, corporate finance, which is what I work on, M&A and capital raising. We have a restructuring division. We have a consulting division. And we have something called financial advisory services, which is more valuations and fairness opinions. I won't get into that. Really, what I do in corporate finance is help companies do mergers and acquisitions and help them raise money. So we will get a client and they will say, look, we want to sell our business. Can you help run a process to sell our business? create marketing materials, reach out to buyers, set up an auction type process and help us execute the sale of the business. Or the other thing is some companies will come to us and say, I want to raise $30 million in growth capital. I want to grow my business. We help reach out to investors and help them raise that money. That's different than being a fund where a fund has capital that it invests in businesses. So Courtside Ventures is is more of an investment Fund, mm-hmm. Causeway Media, your, your students mm-hmm. may be familiar with, right. Invest. We are more of an advisor versus a fund. Right. So there are again, different functions, but but our role is to help companies raise money and to do M&A.
0: And can you take us through a couple of the, at least mention some of the deals that you've worked on sure. that have been successful with? Sure.
2: So, so uh, we, uh, our, our team raised money for FanDuel a couple of years ago before we actually got to Houlihan Loki. We were at a predecessor bank, Mesa. Uh, when we got to Houlihan Loki, we helped sell a company called World Golf Tour to Top Golf. Wow. World Golf Tour is a digital golf business that got brought into Top Golf to kind of create a media division within Top Golf. Uh, a very successful deal. More recently, we helped uh, Time, Inc. sell SI Play to NBC, the youth sports business. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we sold uh, recently Golf.com and Golf Magazine, which were owned by Meredith as they took over time. We sold that business to Howard Milstein and Emigrant Capital. So uh, a lot of what we do, again, is advise companies when they're trying to make a sale or, or they're trying to raise money.
1: And so in the, in the case of <clears throat> sports, uh, kind of the sports, the main the main – Part of the sports business right now. So, what's happening with uh, media deals? What's happening with franchise transactions, things like that? You're fairly open-minded about what what uh, sector in the sports world or, or, or and, and its connections. You, yeah. You look at, yeah.
2: Correct? We and yeah we and we define. Um, sort of sports banking a little bit differently than some of the other folks in in our space. Traditionally, sports investment banking was really just about selling teams. Mm -hmm. It was really about, can we represent someone on the sale of this team or represent someone trying to buy a team? And that's an interesting business, but there aren't that many transactions. So there's only so much you can do and it gets to be a very lumpy business. The way we look at it is that's one piece of the puzzle, but we're also interested in sports content deals, sports ticket deals, OTT, esports, fantasy sports. We see roughly 10 or 11 different subsectors in sports where we think we can add value and help our clients achieve their goals.
1: Yeah, and so what do, you, what do you think of the kind of diversification of the investing world in and around sports? So the growth of the accelerators and, and the, the different kinds of funds that have been created, the uh, the growth of owner investing and proprietary ventures businesses from leagues and things like that? It's really different than it yeah. was 10 years
2: yeah. ago. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think it's that's that's part of the exciting uh, aspect of, of being in, in this business right now is that a lot of sports team owners, for example, are in a way – professionalizing or standardizing the way they look at deals. Ten years ago, you might go to an owner, and yeah, he might make an investment here or there in a one-off situation. Now a lot of owners are really creating funds. They're bringing in professional money managers to help with those funds, and it's created a lot more places for entrepreneurs to go if they want to raise capital.
0: One of the deals you kind of touched on is the stuff you've done with Sports Illustrated. Um, It's been out there that you guys are representing the big brand, Sports Illustrated, now. How does that kind of come about, and and what are some of the things you can talk about with, not specifically about that deal, but why Sports Illustrated is an attractive property for some
2: local Yeah, Look, and I I probably can't talk specifically about the deal and the situation. Joe, as you mentioned, it is out there publicly that we are engaged to help advise Meredith on the potential sale of that property. I would say for me, just as I look at my career and opportunities, the fact that uh, we were able to help Time Inc. and then Meredith – Uh, with two prior deals recently with SI Play and with golf really helped us understand the people who are involved, understand the businesses, Mm. and that really gives us a leg up. I would say more generally about the industry right now, uh, look, it's a frothy market out there in terms of sports assets. There aren't very many premium, premium brands out there. Uh, For all businesses in sports that have real strength, whether it's in terms of the brand or economics, this is a, this is a good time. The environment's really good right now.
1: So, we'll, so in terms of deal flow, you know, you're well connected, obviously, and, and I'm sure all your colleagues are too. How are you actually evaluating things that come across your desk? And I assume there's many of them. Yeah. Uh, and how do you vet them?
2: Well, you know, I, I wish they just came across the desk. <laughs> the the reality is, what ends up happening is I might spend two or three years essentially covering a company, meaning I'm meeting with the CEO, I'm maybe suggesting ideas, making some connections, really helping... These folks along get getting an understanding, and you hope at the time. Then, when someone decides they want to raise money or do a sale, that they're there to that 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 they call you up and at least give you a shot. So, if you if you try to show up to a client when they're just about to do a deal and you haven't talked to them in a year or two, you're probably not going to get hired. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of my job actually is day to day trying to stay in the flow, suggest ideas, connect people, and so that's a lot of what I do. When it comes to deciding what deals to take on or not, look, want to work with great brands and properties, want to work with people who want to do transactions. Sometimes there are parties that are kind of ambivalent about it. And when you're in a business that's largely success fee driven, you don't want to spend a lot of time on things that may, Mm -hmm. you know, things sometimes don't happen, but you want to give yourself the best shot to succeed. You also want to work with people who are uh, realistic about what the outcomes could be and, and, and committed to working with you as a partner. So it's all of those factors.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you talked about two or three years from an initial meeting, perhaps to close. Are there deals? What's the normal kind of, is there a normal like six months to a year or are there things that literally could happen, you know, in this day and age in a month that would make sense? Yeah, I mean, I
2: think it's it's unusual for a deal to go from beginning to end in a month. I think a lot of them could be really six months from beginning to end. But again, there are different kinds of processes. Sometimes someone will hire you and say, look, let's put together a marketing book that may take six weeks to do. Then you go start calling people. Then you have a first round bid date. Then you have a second. And, and that kind of process could take six mm-hmm. to eight months. In other cases, somebody calls up and say, look, we someone just made us an offer we really like this offer, but we'd like you to make a couple of calls to see if there's anything else out there that we should take. And that kind of deal can get done a lot quicker.
1: Chris, it's such an interesting story that you, you've you've uh, you've had. Is there a common thread between skill sets and kind of knowledge
0: and, that, yeah. that, that and, ties and funny, the three that together? To Mentioned that, that I think will play into this, which is patience yeah. too. Well, yeah, for so, sure, patience. Yeah. So what, what are yeah, some? Yeah, I,
2: I would say that the the thing that ties through my nfl days and my big lead days and my current days is probably my greatest strength is on the deal side or the business development deal side and so at the NFL, we did deals, as you know, Tom, with AOL and with Sirius. And, and a lot of that was, were deals that had never really been done before in the way they were constructed and the way that they we were defined. And so being creative about deals was really right. a critical part of what I did because we were making a lot of these deals up. Similarly, at Big Lead, again, we were independent, entrepreneurial. We had deals with Gannett. We had deals with other parties. And so I think my, my biggest strength has always been the deal side of it. Now that's kind of what I'm doing full time, right. but I think it played a role in everything No, it's an interesting
1: point about bringing creativity Mm -hmm. into it, especially in this era where a lot of stuff really needs to be rethought and reanalyzed because all bets are off in terms of the really quick, fast changes in the industry.
2: Yeah, and I think you have to – and the other part of it is you have to really listen to – you have to be a great listener. I always – this is one of the traits that I got from – Commissioner Taglibu, actually, which is like, you know, I come to a meeting and the first thing I want to do is listen. I mean, obviously, but sort of listening to what each party needs then going back and trying to figure out, okay, how do I bridge the gap? What things? What, what levers do I have? Because again, one of the things I found in investment banking, especially, but even in my prior uh, experiences, there are a lot of deals that will either happen or not happen based on your skill at bringing the parties together on something and getting it over the finish line. Mm-hmm. If you don't do those certain things, this deal may not happen. Right. And it may be figuring out some creative solution when you're jammed on a deal and maybe trying to bring some other party into the mix to resolve a conflict, those things really do matter.
1: So I just, if no, you man, don't mind, Joe, yeah, one quick follow up on that. So, so many of us in this business are involved in one way or another with business development. And most of it is typically a long cycle BD, where patience is a key yeah. virtue. How, how do you draw the line between being aggressive and kind of ambitious and also being smart enough to realize you can't push too hard because you're built. You're, you're playing the long game. Sounds like marriage. Mm-hmm. To some <laughs> <new> <laughs>
2: <sense. That's> exactly. <laughs> well, look, I think that you 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 know you can't make somebody ready to do it. The the worst thing you want to be as a banker is just be someone who thought it was like they just want to push me into doing a deal and they're not really looking at my interest overall. Right. So I think you have to genuinely get your eyes and arms around. I want to put myself in the shoes of the entrepreneur, which for me, frankly, was great because I already did that. And that that is, uh, you know, what what does that party really need right now? And do they need a lot of engagement and a lot of help, you know, with intros or with ideas? Or do I want to space that out and get to them every so? So part of it is kind of the rhythm of of your time. But I would say the other issue for someone in my shoes is kind of what I have is my time. So I also have to be thoughtful about where do I spend it, when do I spend it, with Mm -hmm. whom do I spend it, to make sure I'm maximizing what I can for my company and for my practice. Right.
0: Let's look at the marketplace a little bit, too. Um, you have obviously been very entrepreneurial. Conversations that we've had, it's always somehow around gambling, esports, what's coming next. Uh, what are you, just in general, your thoughts on things like esports and gaming? Um, the gambling market, the opportunities that could be there, or some other things maybe that that you're looking at that you think are really kind of interesting
2: from an investment standpoint? Well, eSports is uh, clearly a a big focus for a lot of investors. Uh, I think the reason it's exciting is because people feel like there's an entry point that they can get involved in that isn't, uh, you know, buying a billion-dollar sports team. There's a lot of uh, earlier-stage businesses that, that can be invested in. Some of the teams, uh, as you know, might have been valued at 20 or $30 million last year. This year, some of them may be valued at $150 million. So mm-hmm. people have seen some upside, and that gets people excited. Uh, it's also a – esports is, as much as it's a huge audience – uh, uh, platform. Uh, it's still very fragmented. It's still the Wild West, which also creates a lot of opportunities if you get smart on it and you spend time in it. So there are a lot of investors looking at esports. A lot of those deals are relatively small, but we spend time in it just because we think there's, there's a real future there. Uh, what, what has not fully happened yet is the kind of monetization that you'll need long-term to make these big revenue generating businesses at least on the on the sports side obviously the publishers and their mm-hmm. traditional video games have have big revenues but one of the things that has underpinned all of major professional sports is big tv rights deals that's not necessarily going to be the case for eSports. There are streaming deals. There's a global business. But the question will be, can you build that next? If you've got the big four, is this the big five? But what kind of replaces that TV revenue? Is it streaming revenue? Is it transaction revenue? But, but I do think there's there's real opportunity there. Uh, in terms of sports gambling, uh, you know, people have been talking about it for a decade. Uh, and as I was in the fantasy business, sort of in and around it, uh, I think it's very exciting but I think it's, it's really too soon to say which direction all of this takes. I think mo- many observers think, you know, the Supreme Court will overturn the decision. Again, who knows? Then it may become a state-by-state uh, kind of uh, initiative. You know, what does that mean? Is that good for horse racing interest in casinos? Is that good for daily fantasy folks? Is that good mm-hmm. for sports leagues? I think nobody really knows, but I think there's certainly a lot of opportunity.
1: So, Chris, can you explain for everybody's edification – how leagues would benefit financially, and I'll mention one thing that you know, you guys know about, yeah. which is Adam Silver floated the idea a few months ago, of the NBA getting a one percent, what he called initially an integrity fee, yeah. which you can you can explain, and then later changed the, the characterization to a royalty, yeah. meaning they're creating the intellectual property, you got to get a royalty against it, and he got a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. For, for recharacterizing it like except that. for the
0: fact that the PGA tour and NASCAR and other co- leagues have said the same thing now too so it's, right so so, know, so it's they, an
1: interesting question but I, but that, I think we all talk about how much money there is in gambling but tell us about how leagues would benefit financially? Specifically. Well, well, look,
2: I think that they are, in some of these proposals that are being floated around, it, it seems like they want, in the context of whether it's federal legislation or some legalization, that there be some royalty attached. That certainly could be one way it happens. If that doesn't happen, the other things the league controls, even though they've got broadcast partners, is they do control the, their media assets to determine whether or not gambling could be promoted during the games, mm-hmm. whether it could be promoted on the leagues, on the uh, right, yeah. league outlets, in the mm-hmm. venues. So the leagues have a lot of control in terms of ways that sports gambling could ultimately be promoted. So even if the royalty piece doesn't happen, I think there are a lot of ways that leagues could potentially benefit.
1: But is royalty the right way to think of it?
2: Well, I, look if you can it, it, you know if if you get an annuity revenue stream I was say, on, cha- on, oh, on, cha- on on, on I every mean, I, I, the I, I, answer of course is yes on right? every dollar look I, the, the the political machinations of right. this right. are so hard to determine I mean and again especially if it doesn't end up happening federally and there are individual state uh, deals that end up happening there's the state parties there's the racetrack associations there's all the other local interests the casinos the daily fantasy folks i'm sure will be out there so so it comes down to at some level what leverage do people have to Mm -hmm. exert and gain economic control and right. then also it comes to the other point, point. I'll just mention briefly, is I think the leagues have made some argument about getting the official data feeds, right. and that's another way, effectively, mm-hmm. you could get paid by licensing the, you need to use the official right. data feed, and, and so that's part of the payment, mm-hmm. too.
0: Right, and you can justify a, a royalty in that context, I think, pretty easily.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: can you touch on, uh, you get first look or look at lots of companies that come in, um, not companies that you've dealt with, but some media companies that you think in the last couple of years... Uh, are doing a good job in kind of adapting to the very fluid marketplace that we're in right
2: now. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention a few, and not necessarily clients, but just interesting mm-hmm. kind of trends that are going on. I think in the, the content space uh, over the past uh, few months, you've probably read that a company called The Athletic mm-hmm. has raised a, a mm-hmm. bunch of money and is, seems to be having success around a subscription. Uh, have you had, on them had a subscription-based yeah. model? And so, what I what I like about what they're doing, which seems to be very attractive is that they are uh, really kind of going against the grain. They're, they're focusing on really quality journalism. They're focusing not on an ad model, but a subscription model. And it seems like consumers may be willing to pay. And, and it seems like investors are really excited about that kind of annuity business uh, rather than uh, just an ad-supported business alone. So I think that's an interesting, you know, more, more recent phenomenon. Uh, a company in the, in the e-sports space uh, uh, called Echo Fox... Interesting business because they not only have a, uh, a a team, but they're partnering with others on leagues. They're developing original content. Creating a multi-dimensional business around esports, which I think makes a lot of sense. So those are two that just that come to mind. Obviously, there have been innovations in ticketing. Vivid Seats has done a terrific job of growing its business over the past several years and cutting into to StubHub. Uh, there are there are others in the sort of OTT space. Uh, you know, uh, I'd say in the in the youth sports space, Huddle has done a great job. Uh, so again, people are innovating across the board.
1: And 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 last question before we move to the to the wrap up. Uh, questions. Um, How do you think the leagues are doing and should be doing the media side of their businesses at this point in history?
2: It's a good question. And I I think for the first time, there are really some environmental uh, issues kind of facing them. One is business and one is, you know, sort of behavioral. The business aspect is as the number of cable subscribers declines, that kind of gravy train, which was 100 million cable subs paying ESPN and everybody else, as that starts to diminish, that's a problem for the sports leagues. Mm -hmm. And the question will be whether the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world will kind of make up for that, kind of an open question at this point. I'm not sure there's anything the leagues can do specifically about that, but that is environmentally an issue. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is more behavioral, which is Is the next generation of fans really want to sit through three- and four-hour games? It gets to the pace of the games. It gets to all these other things that they're trying to address. And I think to this point, the leagues haven't fully... Uh, grappled with that or, or solved that issue. Uh, now whether, for example, sports gambling helps solve that issue because now people right. in-game can mm-hmm. sort of say, hey, I know the game's over, but who's going to score the next goal? I'll stick around. That may be helpful, but I don't think that they've really solved that issue yet, which is how do we transform our product for the next generation of right. fans who may want to see it a little bit differently?
0: Yeah. So we ask uh, two questions always to um, the guests who come on. First one is how do you stay up to date? What do you read? Who do you follow? And then the second thing is, since we've got a lot of students or people looking to transition, is everybody who comes to you for advice. What's kind of the, you know, the Yoda ish piece of advice that you give people? Career uh, advice. Career, career advice. advice. Yeah.
2: Well, I, the, regarding the how do I stay up to date? You know, there are the you know the SBJs of the world and and various other sports blogs and conferences that I go to. But I would say the most important thing that I do to stay up to date is I really try to meet lots of companies doing new things. And I try to actually be systematic about it. Uh, For a while there, I even sort of had, okay, on Friday from 10 to 2, we're going to do six half hours every week or every other week of new companies just to make sure that you're hearing the story directly from them. So I would say it's great to read things, but it's much more valuable if you can somehow get out and actually meet people and and sort of have that dialogue. So I that would be you know my, my view on that. In terms of uh, in terms of career advice, uh, it's it's a hard one because uh, the industry is changing so fast. And to say this is the track you should start at a league and then do something entrepreneurial versus doing an entrepreneurial and start at the, start of the league. I think what I would say to most people, especially, and I've taught at NYU, I teach at Northwestern now and and, and others, is that use your imagination about how you can start what you want to do even on your own, even if you're a student. So that means you have your own blog, you have your own mm-hmm. consulting business, you have your own – try to get into it in some way, shape, or form already Whether wh- before you wait to say, well, I don't know if the NFL is going to hire me or not. Mm-hmm. There are lots of creative ways that as, as, as young people you can get involved in businesses uh, e- even on your own.
0: And, and just a quick follow-up on that is especially being around the big lead, you saw some of those people who kind of like a Ron Chandler who created a business who was able to grow it. Who are some, like two or three of those people that maybe you know you could say I saw this guy go from here to there or this woman go from here to there.
2: Interesting. I don't. I probably forget forget them along the way. I would say just because we're on the big lead, I would say Jason McIntyre is yep. somebody who uh, who we work with uh, Joe and I early on when he had a you know kind of an interesting blog and now he's become really a big factor in the media space. So I would say that's, that's one good example. I'm probably forgetting about others, so I'll, I'll share those okay. at, some, at a later date. But I, I would say, again, it's, it's interesting that people uh, you know, who continue to, again, I, maybe I'm biased because of what I'm doing, continue to reinvent themselves, try to find the next thing, try to find mm-hmm. new ways to build their skills, I think can play a bigger role in the industry longer term than sort of a, a flash in the pan. And that, that's what I try Quick to do. Quick follow-up in the career question.
1: This, and, and, we'll, and we'll wrap with this. Uh, So you have a lot of experience managing, hiring, teaching, meaning you have a pretty big universe of younger, mostly younger people Mm -hmm. who probably want to, from time to time, talk to you or get help Mm -hmm. from you. How, How do you think it's best for junior people or younger people to reach out to People like you, senior people, experienced people—like what
2: works for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's that's a good point because we're all busy, right. And and you couldn't necessarily field all. And even the way you talked
1: about how important it is to manage your time—that's one. Right yeah, back, yeah,
2: yeah. No, I think. Look, I think that if uh, if first of all, I would I tend to do things for people who are my alumni groups. So I would say to young people again, it's very obvious, but, but actually look at the, the alumni, lo- go, go to the, no, go to the, yeah, if you go to no, go to the alumni logs and bulletins and, and find out what's the network of people. Yep. And again, it sounds very obvious, no, but that's it really, people, mm-hmm. people do that. That's sort of number one. Number two is, I, I guess if someone reached out to me with a specific idea and, and something a little bit provocative, not crazy, but it's a little bit provocative, I might, Take note of that more than just a, a random LinkedIn sort yeah. of hey, how, you know, can I can I get five minutes of your time? Yeah. Uh, so again, I think if you could be a little creative about an idea, and if you can find some connection, I think that's probably the way to do it.
0: It's good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, Trying to think if there's anything else we should be covering. <laughs> wow, I mean that, a that's that's, a, that's lot a lot of stuff. Good nuggets of uh, um, wisdom in this. Uh, actually, last thing: How do you enjoy? The teaching environment does it does it give you new ideas for for young people coming into the business? I, I
2: love teaching. I've done it both in person and now I do it online, and it's great for me to engage with again the next generation of sports fans. I learn as much mm-hmm. as uh, as they do, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was actually just at Northwestern last week doing a guest lecture spot in, in a class. But I, I, I love it and, and really appreciate you know the enthusiasm that students bring.
0: Yeah, great. So Chris Russo. Um, oh, l- lastly, before we forget, Tom. <laughs> How do people f- find more information about Hoolihan Loki about what you're doing? Are there places online they should be going? Yeah, and let you go? yeah.
2: I would go to our website hoolihanloki.com and again uh, reach out to Joe and Tom if you want my specific contact info or on LinkedIn. But happy to happy to chat with students. Great.
0: Chris, thanks for joining us. Tom, another great show. This was yeah. really an area that we hadn't covered before, too. No, thanks. And, and,
1: and it's really great to talk thank to Chris thank, on the record officially <laughs> uh, after all these years of talking off the record. Yeah. So thank you for sharing all those uh, stories and insights. Great. Thanks for including record. me.
2: Appreciate
0: it. Once again, this was another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. we were joined by Chris Russo, who are loki. I'm Bill Favorito, and my colleague Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the road. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University sports
1: podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and the host is Joe Fabrito. Our production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Heidelman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore S. our program, Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management.
2: Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.